0: So we're looking at 1 John 1, 9 in context. We're looking at part four. We've already had three studies, and this is our fourth study on 1 John 1, 9 in context. So today we're looking at purified from all sin, and it comes out of 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Um, And this is the message we've heard from him. That's the apostles, what they heard from Jesus and announced to you. And here's the message that he and the other apostles heard from Jesus that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, and we've, 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 we've learned that that's the false teachers or, or anybody saying, hey, I know God, have fellowship and knowing God is synonymous. If, if somebody says, I know God, yet they're denying that Jesus is the Christ, Antichrist, they're denying the work of Jesus on the cross. Antichrist, then they're walking in the darkness. They, they, this, in my understanding, this isn't believers who are claiming to be in fellowship with God and who are living in sin. It's believer. It's uh, it's false teachers claiming to be in fellowship with God, but who are denying that Jesus is the Christ and they're denying the work of Jesus on the cross. So John says, if anybody says they have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, that's antichrist, christ anti-cross, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, believe in Jesus is the Christ, believe in the work of Jesus on the cross, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, our shared belief system that Jesus is the Christ and the work of Jesus sure on the cross unmuted, but- and the blood of Jesus uh cleanses from all sin all right so there's two questions i want us to answer here there's there's two questions i want us to answer question number 1 is how can an impure person be in a close relationship with god who is completely pure that's the first question we're going to answer the second question we're going to answer is does a believer have to seek daily forgiveness and cleansing from sin through constant confession to maintain fellowship with God? All right, that's what I was taught. I was taught that as a believer, in order to me, in order for me to maintain fellowship with God or closeness with God, or, or not to have sin disrupt my relationship with God or my my enjoyment of the relationship and closeness, then I would have to have maintained fellowship with God through constant confession of sin. So question number two is, does a believer have to seek daily forgiveness and cleansing from sin through constant confession to maintain fellowship with God? Or have we been forgiven and cleansed through the blood of Jesus one time for all time for all sin and thus enjoy uninterrupted fellowship with God? So those are the two questions we want to answer in our study today. So in 1 John 1, five, John writes that God is absolutely pure. 1 John 1.5 says, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. So we, the apostles, heard from Jesus, and now we're declaring to the churches uh, that He's he's writing to in Asia Minor, Ephesus would be one of those churches where it says uh, church history has him being a pastor of a church in Ephesus. So, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So, God is light means God is 100% clean, He's 100% pure, He's 100% holy, He's 100% loving, He's 100% kind, He's 100% good. There is nothing unloving in God, and there is no sin at all in God. He is pure and clean and loving and holy and just. So now we we want to examine what the Bible says about knowing God and having a clean heart. So we're going to look into the Jewish scriptures, and we're going to see what the Jewish scriptures have to tell us about knowing God and having a clean heart. The Bible says purity is required to be in a relationship with God. Psalm eleven seven <clears throat> says, for the Lord is righteous and he loves justice and upright men will see his face or righteous people will see his face. And remember that phrase, see his face, because we're going to see that momentarily. Psalm 24, 3 through 4 says, who shall ascend uh, the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Or who will be in the presence of the Lord? And here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So we see that the requirement for being in relationship with God and being in the presence of God is clean hands. That's external, doing everything right externally and a pure heart having, the, having a purity of thought, a purity of desires internally. So both external and internal purity is required to ascend to the hill of the Lord or to be in the presence of the Lord. And it's notice it's ascend to the hill of the Lord. It's ascending. It's, it's you're, you're moving up. That's the old covenant. In the old covenant, men ascended. They they try to move toward God. In the new covenant, Jesus comes to us. He descends to humanity. That's grace. So under law, we try to ascend. Under grace, he descends. It's a major, major difference. So that when we study scripture, we've got to, we've got to study it rightly dividing between law and grace, old and new covenants. So we see in Psalm 140, verse 13, surely the righteous will praise your name. The upright, the righteous, the, the those who have clean hands and a pure heart will dwell in your presence. And then Matthew 5, 8, which we're familiar with in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So Matthew 5, 8 comes directly out of the Psalms that you and I just uh, read. So that's the big question in the Sermon on the Mount. How, how can a person become righteous enough to be in a right relationship with God? How can a person become pure so they can live in the kingdom of God? Uh, what's the righteousness required to live in God's kingdom, the kingdom of God? Jesus is addressing that entire issue and that question in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, our righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees, which was an external righteousness, to be in the kingdom, and then Jesus goes into the heart of this internal righteousness that's required that we all fall short of, because we all fall short of the glory of God, And, and it leaves us in need of grace. So what does the Bible have to say about the condition of our hearts? As purity of heart is required in order to see God, in order to be in relationship with God, then what does the Bible say about the condition of our hearts. The Bible says our hearts are impure. Therefore, we cannot see God, know God, be in fellowship with God, or live in his presence. Proverbs 29 says, who can say I've kept my heart pure, and that I'm cleansed from sin. And and the answer to that, obviously, is nobody. No one can say I've kept my heart pure. No one can say I'm cleansed from sin, except jesus he's the only one whose heart remained pure and whose life was cleansed from sin he had no sin in him that's why he could become the perfect sacrifice for our sins matthew 15 19 talk jesus is talking about the the heart of of humanity for out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery sexual immorality theft false witness and slander these are what defile a person. So notice, it's not what we do externally that defiles a person. It, it's not that when we actually slander somebody that, oh, I've, I've sinned because I've just criticized a person verbally. It starts in the heart. It's a heart issue. We, we're, we have the reason our words can be impure is because our hearts have become impure. We're, we're born with sinful hearts, and we'll see that shortly. Um, Romans 3.10 says, there are none righteous, no, not one. So if righteousness is required to enter into relationship with God, if purity of heart is required to be in the presence of God or to see God, then none of us can ascend to that level. We, we all fall short. And so there's, there's, it's an impossibility for us to have pure hearts because we're born with sinful hearts. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if God is absolutely pure and absolutely loving and absolutely kind and absolutely good, there's no impurity in God, and we all fall short of his purity, then we can't be in relationship with him. We can't see him because we fall short of everything that he is. I want us to take a look at David and Bathsheba for a minute. So following his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, David realized the depths of his sin and the impurity of his heart. Now remember, David not only had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, but he had her husband Uriah murdered. He stole Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He lied about it all. So by doing this, David broke the Ten Commandments in his heart. So he didn't have a pure heart. He broke the Ten Commandments with his hands. He didn't have clean hands. And with his words, he broke the Ten Commandments. So this adulterous relationship and the devastating events that followed started in David's impure heart when he coveted another man's wife. Remember, the the men of Israel had gone off to fight battles. David stayed behind. And he was up on the the roof of his palace, and he noticed Bathsheba, and he started coveting her in his heart. And then all of the events that followed flowed from his impure heart. So his impure actions flowed from his impure heart. So in Psalm 51, we see David's realization of his sinful heart and his need for his sins to be forgiven and his heart to be cleansed. So David writes in Psalm 51, one through two, these one through 12, these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving devotion, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me clean of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be proved right when you speak and blameless when you judge. Surely I was brought forth in iniquity. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inmost being. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take your Holy Spirit. uh, Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. So there's two things I want us to note here. is first of all, David realizes he can't cleanse his own heart. So he's seeking God's cleansing, and he's seeking God's forgiveness, cleansing from sin and forgiveness of sin. And, and the same that is true of David is, is true of you and I. We can't cleanse our own hearts. Uh, our hearts are impure, our hearts are uh, sinful. And, but let me add, apart from Christ, apart from Christ, our hearts are impure. Apart from Christ, our hearts are sinful. All right. And there's another distinction I want us to take a look at, which many, many people, they, they don't make this distinction. And it's very important that we do to understand scripture. Is David lived under the old covenant of law, meaning the blood of Jesus had not been shed for, for cleansing from and forgiveness of sins. Therefore, he is asking God to forgive his sin and cleanse his heart, and this is life under the old covenant. So, in the old covenant of law, people could move in and out of fellowship with God based upon daily forgiveness of and cleansing from sin. They would go to God. They would ask for forgiveness. They would seek cleansing under the the law. Now, notice in David's prayer psalm 51 he makes no mention of the blood of christ he makes no mention of the cross of christ he has no understanding of what we understand but what happens so often is 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 so many bible teachers will will take us to david's confession of sin and seeking of forgiveness and trying to use david as a model for us in our sin when if we go back into 1 John chapter 2, John says, what do we, so what do we do when we sin? Chapter 2, verse 1, John doesn't point people back to Psalm 51. John points people to the cross of Jesus, not the confession of David. Mm-hmm. And that's so important that we know that you and I aren't like David. David would have loved to have lived under the new covenant. David, we've got it so much better than David did. He lived under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. So we don't want to model our relationship with God after David. We want to base our relationship with God on the cross of Jesus, not the confession of David. And it's really important to understand that. So in the old covenant of law, people can move in and out of fellowship with God based upon daily forgiveness of and cleansing from sin. Forgiveness and cleansing were always temporal and continual under the law of Moses. Seeking the forgiveness and cleansing from sin was a daily ritual for those under the law. And for me, it became a daily ritual. I was I wasn't under the Mosaic law, but I was under the law of those who were discipling me. And and their law was: hey, to, to maintain fellowship with God and stay forgiven and clean before God, you have to daily confess sin and experience and, and receive God's forgiveness and stay clean before God. I was, I was, I was basing my relationship with God on Psalm 51 rather than on the cross of Jesus. So people under the law could never rest in the finality of forgiveness and the permanency of purity before God. Thankfully you and I do not live under the old covenant of law where forgiveness and cleansing is a daily ritual. Instead, we live under the new covenant of grace, where forgiveness and cleansing is eternal. During the days of the old covenant, God promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, that a new covenant would come, which would bring eternal forgiveness and cleansing from sin. David didn't live under the new covenant. David was still under the old covenant. The new covenant was yet to, had, had, had yet to come. But you and I, we live in the new covenant. We live in the finality of forgiveness and the permanency of purity before God because of the blood of Jesus. And that's what John points the people to when he's writing in First John chapter 7, the blood of Jesus, which purifies from all sin. He doesn't point people back to Psalm 51 because John understood we live in a new covenant. Because we live in the new covenant, we do not live in the daily ritual of seeking forgiveness for and cleansing from sins. Now, so many believers are stuck with an old covenant mentality, an old testament mentality, even though they don't live in the reality of the old covenant of law. Mentally they do, which which I did for years. Our reality is the new covenant. God's reality for you and I is the new covenant. So let's examine the new covenant closely and how it relates to 1 John. It's important to know that John was with Jesus in the upper room when Jesus spoke of the new covenant, which would be established in his blood. So John heard Jesus say the following words. Remember, John is with Jesus, and he hears Jesus say these words. And Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them saying, and here's what John heard Jesus say. This is my body given for you. That's grace. I'm, I'm descending. Uh, is, we're, no, we're no longer ascending. We're, we're not ascending to God by trying to have a pure heart and clean hands. Can't be done. He's now descending to us. Paul talks about it in the Philippians 2. He takes on humanity, takes upon our sin, and he goes to the cross where he dies for us. So, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, what are we remembering here? We're remembering that Jesus died for our sins. We're remembering that he took our unrighteousness and our impurity upon himself. So, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, and here's what John would have heard him say this cup is the new covenant in my blood. John clearly heard those words, new covenant, new Testament. Testament's the same, same word there in the Greek. So remember what you and I've talked about over these four weeks, the new Testament is not a collection of books that start in, in Matthew chapter one and goes through revelation. That's, that's not the new Testament. The new Testament is a new way of relating to God based upon the blood of Christ, where your heart has been made pure by the blood of Christ and your sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. We don't relate to God like David did in Psalm 51. We relate to God based upon the cross of Jesus, not the confession of David. And we don't want to mix the two together. All right. So here's what Matthew says which John again would have heard while they were eating, Jesus took bread and spoke a blessing and broke it and gave it to the disciples whom John was one saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them saying, drink from it. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant of the new Testament of the new way of relating to God different than the old way David related to God. We have a new way of relating to God based upon the blood of Christ, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when he says, take and eat and drink, he's saying, listen, your spiritual nourishment is to be the blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. The the way you and I become spiritually healthy is by eating from the new covenant, relating to God through the new covenant, eating from this new covenant. And and what are we, and how do we do that? By faith. By faith, I believe that the blood of Jesus has forgiven all my sins by faith. I believe that the blood of Jesus has purified my heart from all sin. And if you, when you and I begin living by faith in the new Testament, we will see a spiritual growth happen in our hearts that could have never been produced if we're using David as a model for how to deal with sin. Rather than using David as the model for dealing with sin, we're now using the blood of Christ as a model. Now is confession good? Is it good to confess our sins to one another? Is it good to talk to the father about maybe what we're going through? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with honesty and openness and transparency in our relationship with others who are safe and our relationship with the Father who is completely safe. But please, we've we've got to know that our sin does not disrupt fellowship. Our sin does not cause God to turn away from us, nor us to turn away from God. We're in this relationship with God. We have fellowship with God, which now we can be open and honest and transparent in, in a real relationship. So we want to eat and drink based upon the words of Jesus from the new covenant. We don't it's not the words of David that we want to live by. He was under the old covenant. It's the words of Jesus, which John would have heard these words. And we're going to see how this plays in the 1st John here momentarily. So Jesus came to put an end to the old covenant that David lived under. So so the covenant that David lived under, Jesus came to put an end to, which was a covenant where forgiveness and cleansing from sin was temporal And continual Jesus came to put an end with that of that mindset of that way related to relate to God. He came to establish the new covenant in his blood where forgiveness and cleansing from sin is eternal. So the book of Hebrews explains the transition from the old to the new covenant and the author of Hebrews one, one through four writes. So the the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew people is written to Jewish people who were still living under the law of Moses. They were still relating to God like David related to God in Psalm 51. They had not come to the new covenant. They weren't resting in the blood of Christ. They were depending upon rules and rituals and disciplines and um, requirements in order to be right with God. So, in, in order for their hearts to be clean and their sins to be forgiven. So here's what the author of Hebrews writes. On many past occasions and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers. Now he's talking about the, 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 the fathers of, of, of the Jewish race, those who came before the current generation that the author of Hebrews is writing to. All the Jewish fathers who came before says, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, uh, Malachi. uh, You can go back through Amos and Joel. He's referring to Jewish scriptures here, that God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But something's about to change. But in these last days... God has spoken to us, that's the Jewish race, the Jews in context here, by his son. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son, so he's trying to lift up in the Jewish minds who are still under the law. He's trying to, to point them to Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He's 100% God. He's 100% man upholding all things by his powerful word. And after Jesus provided purification, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here's David didn't live in the last days. David lived during the time of the prophets. David lived during the time of the fathers, and David lived during the time of the past occasions in the many different ways. David didn't live during this, this time of the son when he came and provided pur- for pur- purification of sins. So after Jesus provided for the purification of sins through his death, we don't want to miss this next point here. He sat down. Why did Jesus sit down? Because purification for sins was finished. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, it is finished. Meaning he had provided for your purification for sins, for my purification for sins, and for everyone's, he provided that purification. By faith, we received that provision. All right. That's why this the book of uh, Hebrews was written. He's trying to, move these people to a place where they stop following daily requirements for purification of sins where they stop trying the following daily rituals requirements demands disciplines for purification for sins and to be right with god and to rest by faith and he moves into that in hebrews chapter 3 in the beginning of 4 he's trying to get them to the promised land of grace where the blood of Jesus flows and they receive purification for sins. All right. So Hebrews 2, 9 says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels as a human. Now he's talking about Jesus being the son of man here. He's written about Jesus being the son of man in Hebrews 1. He writes about Jesus being the son of God in Hebrews 2, meaning he's 100% man. He's 100% God. Therefore, he can be the mediator of a new covenant in that as 100% man, he, re- he, he dies for our sin. And as 100% God, th- that's the just payment. All right. So we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels as a human, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus came to die everyone's death that sin brought. And then he provides the purification for sins. It's a a covenant of grace. The law of Moses, covenant of law. This new covenant, covenant of grace. For both the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that means those whose hearts have been made clean, those whose hearts have been made pure, are of the same family. So who is the one who sanctifies? Jesus. Jesus is the one who purifies people's hearts from sins. Those who are sanctified are those who come to faith in Jesus, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's he's not ashamed to, to, to become human and to go to the cross for us. So Hebrews 7, 18 through 27, more of the new covenant. Remember, John heard Jesus say in the upper room that this is my blood given for the new covenant. Hebrews is explaining this new covenant in great, great detail. All right. So let's look more into this new covenant in Hebrews 7, 18 through 27. So the former commandment or the former testament or the former covenant is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. The law the law could not cleanse the human heart. The law cannot forgive human sin. It could cover, but it couldn't cleanse. It couldn't forgive eternally. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. You could, if you wanted to say, by which we enter into fellowship with God. There, we have a much better way of being in fellowship with God than those under the law. Because what, what is required to be in fellowship with God? Perfection. Sin cannot enter into the presence of God. The law could not enable a person to be in true, real, genuine fellowship with God because it could not make a man holy. It could not cleanse the heart of a person. It could not ultimately forgive the sins of a person. You and I live in this better hope, the new covenant. And it's through the new covenant that we draw near to God. Boy, is that a relief. That, that we draw near to God based upon what Christ has done for us, not what not us trying to ascend into fellowship with God. He descended so that you and I could enter into fellowship with God. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant compared to the old covenant. The new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant. And here's why. Because the new covenant brings complete forgiveness, the new covenant brings complete righteousness, the new covenant bring, brings complete purity, whereas the old covenant could do none. Now the old covenant or the Jewish scriptures demanded that a person have an upright heart, a righteous heart, in order to see God. Jesus talked about that in Matthew five eight. the pure in heart will see God. The problem is our hearts are impure, but the new covenant purifies the impure heart, so we can see God, so we can be in fellowship with God. So Jesus has become the guarantee. I want us to notice this word guarantee. Guarantee simply means God. Jesus has guaranteed the fact and the truth that you are forgiven. It is a it, he, He's guaranteed that you are righteous. He's guaranteed that your heart is pure. All right, Jesus is the guarantee. So Jesus, if Jesus said, Brad, I guarantee I'm going to die for all your sins, I can bank on it. If he says, Brad, I guarantee that my blood is going to cleanse you from all sin. And it's going to purify you from all sin. My responsibility then is if Jesus guarantees it, then all I've got to do is believe it. I'm, and that's the gospel. Believe it to be true. Believe it to be true. Have faith in it. The rite of Hebrews goes on in Hebrews 7, 18 through 27. Now, there have been many other priests since, the de- since death present- prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus lives forever and has a permanent priesthood. Now, remember, the priest of Jewish scriptures, the priest of the old covenant, never could sit down, Right. They were always sacrificing for the forgiveness of sins. They were always seeking under the law purity or, or the purification for sins under the law. But when, when one priest died, another would step into his place. But Jesus has a permanent priesthood. He, he he's what he did is permanent. That, that, and that's what we have to understand. Forgiveness is permanent with Jesus. Cleansing is permanent with Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. How do you and I draw near to God? Through the work of Christ. And what did he do? All of your sins have been purified. All of your sins have been forgiven. So you and I are in fellowship with God through the work of Christ on the cross. So, God is able to save completely those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly befits us one who is holy, innocent, undefiled, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priest, Jesus did not need to offer daily sacrifices, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people. Jesus sacrificed for sin once for all when he offered himself. I want us to to notice the word daily there. Unlike the other priest, he does not need to offer daily sacrifices. What does that mean? That under the law, the priests were daily seeking the forgiveness of sins for the people. The priests were daily seeking purification from sins for the people. That's how I was living. That's how I was, how I was uh, discipled. You need to daily seek forgiveness. You need to daily seek purification. You need to daily seek cleansing because if you don't daily seek forgiveness and daily seek cleansing and daily seek purification, then you're out of fellowship with God, which is in direct contrast to the book of Hebrews. Notice this, unlike the other high priest during the times of the law of Moses, Jesus does not need, now look at this, Jesus does not need to offer daily sacrifices, which means that Jesus is not forgiving sins on a daily basis. Jesus is not providing for the purification of sins on a daily basis. Why? Because notice what it what it says here. Jesus sacrificed for sin once for all when he offered himself. Which means Jesus is not going to daily forgive my sins and daily purify for me for my sins because th- that was taken care of when he went to the cross one time for for all of us, and by faith we rest in his work. Look at Hebrews 8 6. Now, however, Jesus has received a much more excellent ministry than who? Than the priests. Because the work of the priest was never done. They were always seeking forgiveness for sins. They were always seeking purification from sins. But Jesus has an excellent ministry, and it's the ministry of the new covenant of grace. It's excellent. It's excellent because it secures eternal forgiveness and eternal purification. Whereas the old law, the old covenant was a ritualistic every single day seek forgiveness, every single day seek purification. The new covenant is on one single day at the cross, your sins were forgiven. On one single day at the cross, your, the blood of Christ purified you from all sins. It's much more excellent. Just as the covenant, that's the new covenant of grace, he mediates, is better and founded on better promises. What's the promises that are better in the new covenant? I promise you, Jesus said, I guarantee you that my my blood is going to forgive all your sins. I guarantee you, I promise you that my blood is going to purify you from all sin. This is what John understood. This is the new covenant that John himself heard jesus say that he was going to establish so we want to keep that in mind because john is communicating what he heard jesus communicate and we see that in first john chapter 1 verse 5 so the writer of hebrews in chapter 8 in chapter 10 uh, verses 8 through 11 quotes jeremiah 31 31 through 34 and the writer of hebrews writes this so he's quoting about the new covenant when he's getting this from jeremiah 31 31 through 34 here's what the writer of hebrews writes in 8 10 through 11 for this is the covenant i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my laws in their minds and inscribe them on their hearts now i believe this to be the laws of the new covenant so to speak or the truths of the new covenant inscribed on the heart of men by the holy spirit now, check me out on this. This is just my thoughts. Is when you have time, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and look that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the ministry of the new covenant. And the, ministry, and the Holy Spirit writes upon the hearts of people the truths of the new covenant. And you can, can read about that in 2 Corinthians 3 um, through 6 2. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not the law of Moses. That's a ministry of death. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is the new covenant. And you can also read back up in Hebrews. I think it's Hebrews 10 where it says the Holy Spirit testifies that the Holy Spirit testifies or teaches people about the new covenant. So I will put my laws or I will put my truths in the minds and in the hearts of people the holy spirit's going to do that also make a note you can go to first corinthians chapter two and first corinthians chapter i think it's two nine where it says no eye has seen uh, no ear has heard what the lord has for those who love him and then it says but we have the mind of christ that mind is a new covenant mind in in that context It's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit writes on our hearts, the truths of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit writes on our minds, the truths of the new covenant. And that's what I think it's referring to here, because remember, God's making a new covenant that's not, not based upon the law. So he's not going to write old covenant laws onto the heart of a new covenant person. All right. that's important distinction to make and i will be their god that's relationship they will be my people no longer will each one teach his neighbor or brother saying know the lord because all those in the new covenant will know me from the least of them to the greatest the new covenant brings us into relationship with god now here's the key for in order to enjoy this relationship for I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. That's what God wants to write on the hearts of believers. And that's what's going on in 2 Corinthians 3, all the way through 6.2, that God is not counting our sins against us. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to write upon our hearts. Because how can I enjoy my relationship with God if I think he's counting my sins against me? If he's keeping a record of my sins, remember what the, the Bible says, if God keeps a record of our sins, who can stand? Well, no one. But God's not keeping a record of our sins. Why not? Because the record was nailed to the cross, Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 13 and 14. There is no record of sin anymore. It's been nailed to the cross. It's the, it's the beauty of the – that's why it's an excellent ministry. That's why it's a better ministry. That's why it's a guaranteed ministry, borrowing from the words of the writer of Hebrews. Look what Hebrews 8:12 says. By speaking of a new covenant, it's a covenant of grace, in, in, conf- in, in contrast to the covenant of law, God has made the first covenant obsolete. It's of no value anymore. The covenant that David lived under and that Psalm 51 is based upon is a covenant that is obsolete. So why do I want to point people back to a covenant that has no value, that is obsolete, that God himself has made obsolete? So look what it says. He, God, made the first covenant that he made obsolete. So if God made that covenant obsolete, I don't want to resurrect a, co- a covenant that he's made obsolete, no more value. And what is obsolete, remember, this was during the days of, when the author was writing this and aging will soon disappear. So this new covenant was in the process of replacing the old covenant. Now it had in the mind of God already replaced it. The blood of Jesus replaced it, but this transition of the old covenant dying and being removed from the nation of Israel and the new covenant coming there was, it was in process because any time new management comes and takes over a business, there is a transition from the old to the new, from old management to new management. And, and that's that's the idea here. Um, but when Christ came as a high priest, this is Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, what are the good things that have come? Complete forgiveness, complete righteousness, purity of heart that the blood of Jesus has purified our hearts. The excellent ministry have come. The guaranteed promises of the new covenant have come. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by hands and is not of this creation. Now that is in contrast to what we see in Exodus and what we see in Leviticus when the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple was created. So when the earthly temple or the earthly tabernacle was created, it had a place where animals were sacrificed at the altar. It had the holy place that when the, when the priest brought the blood into the holy place, and then once a year, he would enter into the most holy place uh, where the mercy seat was. And then the, the Ten Commandments was in the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Beside the Ark of the Covenant was the Book of the Covenant, which was the law of Moses. All right, which testified that the people were guilty. The law of Moses was a continual tes- testifying that the people were guilty. Remember, the law of Moses is a ministry of death. So the law of Moses was written in the book of the covenant or the book of the law was placed in the most holy place right beside the Ark of the Covenant. So the blood of the animal was brought once a year into the most holy place and the blood was dripped upon the mercy seat. All right. The best you could get under the law of Moses was mercy. The best that you, a person could hope for under the law. Remember, Jeremiah, you know, your mercies are new every morning. Your mercies are new every morning. We live with an ex, excellent ministry. We live in grace. The best they could hope for under the law is mercy. We get the very best through the blood of Jesus. We get grace. Way beyond mercy. So Jesus didn't enter this earthly tabernacle this earthly temple with the blood of the animals notice the contrast here it's unbelievable you guys Jesus did not enter the most holy place by the blood of goats and calves but Jesus entered the most holy place one time for all people by his own blood that's amazing Thus securing eternal redemption, eternal forgiveness of sins, eternal purification from sins. There's a huge, there's several contrasts going on here. One is the contrast of the priest having to go every single day into the holy place. And once a year into the most holy place to seek temporal forgiveness and temporal purification. Until a person sinned again, then they would need to sacrifice another animal, get more forgiveness, get more purification. It was continual. It was a ritual. It was ongoing. It was never eternal. Why is the the new covenant an excellent ministry? Because it it secures eternal redemption. That means when you come to faith in Christ, you are forgiven eternally. Your heart is purified from all sin eternally. We, we, we don't go back every single day. Oh, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I, if I do that, I'm, I'm living with an old covenant mentality. But the reality of God is the new covenant. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that their bodies are clean, the old covenant could not touch the heart cannot cleanse the heart. How much more will the blood of Christ, remember what John heard, this is my blood given for the New Testament. This is my blood given for the New Covenant. That's the words John heard that he would have communicated to the body which he was pastor. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. Why? Why? to purify our consciences the inner part our hearts from works of death what's he talking about that works of death any religious attempt to try to forgive my own sin or purify my own heart only brings death what he's saying is is remember the ministry of the law of moses is a ministry of death right that's what he's talking about the works of the law of moses is a ministry of death that cannot cleanse the heart And what is needed to be in relationship with God? A pure heart. Not an externally ceremonial cleanliness, which is the Pharisees pursued, but an internal purity of heart, forgiveness of sin, so that we may serve or we may be in relationship with or we may be in fellowship with the living God. So many people are still living with an old covenant mindset. They're still trying to, 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 they're trying in and of themselves to stay forgiven, to stay pure, to stay righteous before God, and and it, it it doesn't accomplish. They're dead. Something that's dead can't do anything. They're dead works. These works where I'm trying to stay forgiven, where I'm trying to stay in fellowship, where I'm trying try, trying to stay pure, they're dead they don't accomplish every single day back prior to 1990, when I would ask God to forgive me, that was a dead work. When I was trying to stay in fellowship, that was a dead work. When I was trying to keep myself clean and pure, dead work. They, only the blood of Christ forgives sin. Only the blood of Christ purifies from sin. And it's an eternal, internal and eternal security. Hebrews 9, 24 through 26. For Christ did not enter a man-made copy of the true sanctuary, which the priest entered into in Leviticus and Exodus. It was, a, it was the temple and the tabernacle of the old, in Jewish scriptures under the old covenant, was a copy, a replica of the real sanctuary in heaven, that the real dwelling place of God is heaven, not the temple made by men, made by men. So when Jesus had his blood, and he sacrificed himself for himself, or he sacrificed himself for our sins. With his blood, Jesus did not enter a man made copy of the true sanctuary, but he entered heaven itself, the very dwelling place of God. So when Jesus, with his blood, entered heaven itself, now the question is why? Why did Jesus take his blood into heaven? Here's why to appear on your behalf, to appear on my behalf. So Jesus took his blood into heaven itself, the very dwelling place of God for you and for me. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, meaning Jesus isn't in the business of forgiving sin every single day. Jesus is not in the business of purifying from sin every single day. He did it one day, and that was the day on the cross, and he's not going to do it anymore. There's no need for it because his work is finished, right? So when we talk about the finished work of Christ, this is what we're talking about. So God did, Jesus did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, if Jesus had to do it every single day as the high priest did, Christ would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. If daily forgiveness was required for sin, here's what the author is saying. Jesus would have to die every day. If daily purification was necessary for sin, Jesus' blood would have to be shed every day. So what I was doing, I didn't know it, didn't understand scripture. I quote had been discipled, but I really hadn't been discipled because true discipleship we're going to see momentarily is discipling people in the new covenant. All right. What I was asking Jesus to do was die for, Hey Jesus, you know, please forgive me. And I'm really, what I was saying is I need you to die for my sins again. Your death on the cross was not significant did not secure eternal redemption for me. Jesus, then will you step out of heaven, come back to earth, and will you die for my sins again because your first death wasn't complete? Now think about it. If if Think about all the believers who are asking Jesus to forgive them. God forgive me. God forgive me. If he really had to answer that request and grant that request, he would have to step down again to earth and die again for the sins of people every single day. That's what he's saying here. Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Think about the repetition that goes on in believers' minds and hearts and lives. Repeatedly, God forgive me, God forgive me. Just the repetition, God forgive me, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Cleanse me from my sin, I'm so sorry. The repetition, all right? But now Jesus has appeared once for all people at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he's, remember, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he's referring to here. Takes away the sin of the world, it forgives sin completely, purifies from all sin. And then Hebrews chapter 10 verses one through 10 says this for the law is only a shadow of the good things to come remember the good things is 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 the grace of the new covenant not the realities themselves the the animal sacrifices were just pictures of jesus who's going to be sacrificed for our sins the daily cleansings and washings under the law was this pictures of jesus coming to cleanse and to wash from all sin the law can never by the same sacrifices offered year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If the law could enable a person to draw near to God in fellowship, would not the offerings have ceased? Meaning if the law was good enough, if, if, if daily doing these daily repetitions and disciplines and demands was good enough, then why do I have to keep doing them is, is the thought. Why do I have to keep doing this over and over and over again? Because there's that in and of itself says there's just something wrong with it. If I have to continually ask forgiveness, continually seek purification, it, it just, something's just not right there. It's a law-based mentality. If it could, would not the offerings have ceased? For the worshipers or those seeking to be in fellowship with God would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt the guilt of their sins. Instead, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. So every time I ask God to forgive me, I'm just reminding myself that I'm guilty when in reality I'm not guilty because the blood of Jesus paid our sins in full. So under this continual rep rep um, repeatedly asking for forgiveness is an annual or daily reminder of guilt when the blood of Jesus says you're not guilty. And said, Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Remember, Jesus took away the sins of the world. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you took no delight. Every time an animal was sacrificed, it didn't bring any joy to the heart of God. It brought no joy when animals were sacrificed for to cover the sins of people. Then I said, Jesus, saying to God the Father, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll in Jewish scripture, I have come to do your will, O God. So what was the will that Jesus came to do? It was to establish the new covenant, which would replace the old covenant. In the passage above, he says. Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor did you delight in them, although the law required them. And then he adds, here I am, that's Jesus speaking, here I am, Father, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first testament or the first covenant to establish the second testament or the second covenant. The first is a temporal covenant. The second is an eternal covenant. The first provides for temporal forgiveness. The second provides for eternal forgiveness. The first provides temporal purification of sin. The second provides eternal purification for sins. And by that will or by that testament or by that covenant, the new covenant of grace, notice this. We have been sanctified. Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once and for all. That's why I don't I don't believe the term um, progressive sanctification is a biblical term, because we have been sanctified by the sanctification is we have been our our sins have been purified, we have been cleansed from all the impurities of sin. it's a we don't on an ongoing basis purify ourselves from sin. It, it's not progressive. It's it's eternal. It's it's permanent, permanent purity internally. Or we couldn't be in relationship with God at all. One time for all. Isn't that beautiful, y'all? Hebrews ten eleven through fourteen. Every priest stands daily, ministering. Look at the word daily. Every priest in in Judaism prior to the new covenant. It was a daily seeking of forgiveness. It was a daily seeking of purification. Every priest, notice, stands daily. It was a continual work every single day, working to be forgiven, working to be pure from sins. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time, day after day, year after year. You know how many believers have been living with this mentality? day after day after day god forgive me i don't want to be out of fellowship with you time after time lord i know i know i'm impure and unclean before you and i want to follow what david said in psalm 51 and i want to ask you to cleanse me with hyssop hyssop, and and to wash me clean of all my sins you know how many believers are doing that and how long they've been doing it years years Rather than coming to the new covenant, God, thank you so much that my sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Thank you so much that my sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. So the new covenant is living in a place of appreciation for forgiveness and purification of sins rather than asking under the old covenant. We're going to see that in just a moment as well. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But having offered one sacrifice, Jesus, having offered one, notice how many times this phrase keeps coming up in Hebrews, one sacrifice for all sins for all time. That is a a phrase that continues to surface in Hebrews because he's trying to convince these people, you are forgiven. You are pure. You are clean. Stop the daily repetition. Stop the time after time. Stop the day after day. Stop the year after year. Rest. And that's what he tells them to do in, 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 in Hebrews three and four. Rest in the new covenant. Well, what are we resting in? Resting that, rest that your sins are forgiven. Rest that you've been purified from all sins. But when Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And here we go again. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Remember what we read in the book of Psalms? What is required to be, to, to, to be face-to-face with God? He who has an upright heart, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Those are the ones who can be in the presence of God. Would I rather go into the presence of God depending upon my, my own clean hands and my own ability to cleanse my heart? Or would I rather seek to be in the presence of God through the blood of Jesus? That's what he's asking the Hebrews. Would you rather seek to be in the right relationship with God through the law of Moses? Or would you rather seek to be in relationship with God through the blood of Christ? And obviously the answer is the blood of Christ. And that's what changed my life, y'all. Is God, I said, I am through seeking to be in right relationship with you and in fellowship with you by daily, con- by daily asking for forgiveness and daily seeking cleansing of sin. I'm going to rest in the one offering for my sins for all time. And I'm pure and I'm clean and I'm holy before you. Even the unclean acts we do with our hands does not make our hearts unclean. We're, we're growing. We're maturing. We're we're, we're, we've been sanctified or perfected forever. The, the, no wonder that the new covenant, um, the, the author of this book says it's an excellent ministry. Look at the excellence of the work of Christ on the cross for us. Hebrews 10, 17 through 18. Then he adds their sins and lawless acts. I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, an offering for sin is no longer needed. Now think about it. If God still needs to forgive sin, then an offering for sin would, have, would, need, would, would be needed. If every time I ask God to forgive me, then he would need to offer Jesus again on the cross. But our sins have been forgiven and an offering for sin is no longer needed. Why is an offering for sin no longer needed? Because remember the phrase we've read over and over again? He offered himself for all sin, for all people, for all time when he offered himself on the cross. Therefore, there's no longer any any offering needed. So we're going to see in a minute what we offer to God now is praise, is a thank you, appreciation. We're going to see that in just a minute. So under the new covenant, we do not seek forgiveness and cleansing from sin. That's what David did, right, in Psalm 51. We're not under his covenant. Under the new covenant, we do not seek forgiveness of and cleansing from sin because forgiveness and cleansing has been secured for us through the shed blood of Jesus, eternal redemption. We now receive one-time forgiveness and one-time cleansing through faith in Jesus. Y'all, that is the new covenant. That is the most beautiful, beautiful message That changes us, and that every single believer needs to know and understand. But sadly, that few believers do. So, the message that every believer needs to know and understand is a message that very few believers know and understand. Look at Hebrews 10 20 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, what does knowing that you and I are eternally forgiven and eternally pure from sins do? It gives us confidence. Now, legalistic Bible teachers will say, oh, it's going to give them a freedom to go sin. They're just going to use this message to go sin more. Well, not according to scripture. What it says is, is it actually gives people confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You know what people aren't living with who think their sins cause them to be out of fellowship with God based upon a poor interpretation of 1 John one nine. A believer is not living with confidence who think that their sins take them out of fellowship and in fellowship. I'm out when I sin. I'm in when I confess. That person has zero confidence. I didn't anyway. I, I know back in, in my time, I had no confidence. I, I, I didn't know if I was in or out. I wasn't I had no assurance. What a miserable, miserable way to live. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, you know, when a baseball, when a a, a batter takes the plate, who's going to, who's going to probably get the, get a hit? The one who steps to the plate with no confidence or the one who steps to the plate with confidence? It's the one with confidence is going to be the most successful. So how do you and I quote, have a successful Christian life? Well, we need confidence. Where does our confidence come from? The blood of Jesus. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, this new covenant, this new and living way, rather than the dead works of the law, this new and living way opened up for us through the curtain of his body. Remember the curtain that hung between the holy place and the most holy place has been torn down. A lot of times we'll say it's been torn in two. No, it's been torn down. And so we want to put a zipper in that. Actually, we want, to re, we want to reconstruct it. We want to hang it up. We want to say, boy, our sin is the curtain that keeps us from being in fellowship with God. So in what, in what Jesus tore down, we're wanting to put back up and we're wanting to put a zipper in it now. Okay. When I confess my sins, I can go into God's presence. And when I don't confess sin, I, I zip it up. I'm, I can't be in God's presence. See the craziness of, what so many people have discipled us, have taught us, I mean, the, the, the silliness of it, the, the religiosity of it, the, the, it, 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 just, it just waters down what Christ did on the cross. A new and living way opened up for us through the curtain of his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with confidence and with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. This sounds like a person who isn't living according to in, out of, in fellowship and out of fellowship. This is a person who, who isn't living like most Christians are living and have been taught to live as believers. This is a person who is enjoying his relationship with God because of the work of Christ on the cross. This person now has confidence and look at this word, sincere heart. You know what that means? An honest, open, real, transparent relationship with the father where I can talk to him about anything and everything going on in my life without fear of judgment, without fear of condemnation, without fear of rejection, just a real love-based, grace-laced relationship with the father because of what Jesus has done a sincere heart an honest heart an open heart a real heart in full assurance of faith fully assured by faith in the finished work of Christ that I'm forgiven and I'm pure and I'm clean and I'm loved by the father having our hearts sprinkled and here's where this assurance comes from here's where this confidence comes from having our hearts, remember, what was, what was needed to be purified, the heart, having our hearts sprinkled with what? The blood of Christ. To cleanse us from a guilty conscience. You know what David was living with in Psalm 51? A guilty conscience. And you know what we do when we, when we move people back to Psalm 51? We're we're moving them back under the law to try to get their guilty conscience removed by this confession. Whereas the blood of Christ is what removes a guilty conscience. David had no concept of the blood of Christ to remove his guilty conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Now, what what the author is doing here, the pure water is the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ. That's the pure water. They were going back to the, to the um, daily washings, the daily baptisms you'll see in the book of Hebrews, or the daily washings, um, seeking to have themselves cleansed. So to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, the, the blood of Christ. We're going to wrap up here very shortly. Hebrews 13, 9 through 12 do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods of no value to those devoted to them. Now he's he's teaching the people under the old covenant who are thinking, well, there's certain foods you can't eat and there's certain foods you can't eat. Remember in, in in Acts chapter 10, God gave Peter a vision. It doesn't matter. You can eat any food. You can go into the Gentiles homes. He's trying to move people away from the old covenant into the new covenant. But you know how many strange teachings there are out there that aren't grace centered that aren't when I say grace centered, work of Christ centered to me, a strange teaching is any teaching that makes my fellowship with, with the father conditional upon me rather than bringing me confidence in the work of Christ. That is a strange teaching. So the uh, to me, a strange teaching is what I was taught when I was with a Christian organization that taught me something called spiritual breathing. Hey, when you sin, you know, confess it, that's, that's exhale, and then inhale by, by, by receiving God's forgiveness. As I look back now, I, I didn't know anything at that point in time. I was 23 years old. I'd been discipled by people who loved the Lord. Uh, who are part of one of the top Christian organizations in the country with, I didn't know that was a strange teaching. When I look back on it now, I'm like, that is a weird, weird concept. It's a strange teaching. You and I can begin to identify strange teachings when we begin to see the spiritual truth of grace. And when you and I see the spiritual truths of grace, these strange teachings will begin to really become crystal clear Because any strange teaching that says there's something that you and I must do to be right with God, to keep our hearts pure, that's a strange teaching. Because what it's saying is the blood of Christ wasn't enough. The cross of Christ wasn't enough. So um, we have an altar. We believers have an altar, which is the cross. There he's talking about the cross of Jesus compared to the altar of the book of Exodus and the altar of the book of Leviticus where the animals were sacrificed we have an altar, the cross which those who serve at the tabernacle that's the that's before it was burned down in AD 70 have no right to eat we remember what jesus told the Pharaoh, told the uh, teach told uh, john and the other disciples this is my body given for you eat of my body drink of my forgiveness of my blood it, the writer saying the same thing here We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. We're eating from a different altar, he says. We're eating from the altar of the new covenant. We're eating from the altar of complete forgiveness and complete righteousness. Although the high priest brings the blood of animals into the holy place as a sacrifice for sin, the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered suffered outside the city gate to sanctify, to purify the people by his own blood. Hebrews 13, 15. So what do we do? Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name. So what he's saying here is don't continually seek forgiveness from God. Don't continually seek to stay in fellowship with God. Don't continually seek to stay pure of your sins before God. That's all been secured for us by the blood of Christ. What he's saying here is because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, what he did for us on his altar, offer to God a sacrifice of praise, meaning God, thank you so much for what Jesus did for me at the cross. Thank you so much that I am forgiven. Thank you so much that I am pure and I am cleansed from all sin. See, we don't live under Psalm 51. We live at the cross of Christ, not the confession of David under the law. And so this is one of the truths that radically transformed my life when I started living based upon Hebrews thirteen fifteen. I, I said, God, I will never, ever ask you to forgive me for another sin. I will never, ever try to seek to stay in fellowship with you by seeking purification from sin through confession, as David did in Psalm 51. I'm going to live according to the blood of Christ and the work of Christ and the cross of Christ. And therefore, I'm going to continually live in appreciation for what you did for me at the cross. Thanking you that I'm forgiven and thank you that I am right before you. Now, real quick, Matthew 28:18 through 20 is where we get the Great Commission from. Most believers are extremely, extremely familiar with the Great Commission. But I want us to understand the Great Commission within context. And I want us to see it not as a concept, but as something that really has content to it. Because most of the time when when the Great Commission, these verses are taught, it's taught more of in a concept, the concept of discipleship. But we miss the content. So Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven, that's his disciples, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, throughout the earth and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's the name Jesus, right? Because we see that being carried out in the book of Acts. Teaching them. So a disciple is a learner, right? A disciple is a learner. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's what people miss. Most Bible teachers miss this. Most preachers miss this. All they see is the concept, they don't see the content of observe all that I have commanded you. What did Jesus? Command the disciples to observe in the upper room the new covenant. Go teach people the new covenant. Go disciple people in the new covenant. Go teach people that the blood of Christ cleanses from all sins. And behold, as you go out and you teach people the new covenant, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Now, how many believers have been discipled according to the content of the great commission very few very few because most christian organizations and most churches and most pastors when they quote this verse as a part of their ministry they they don't understand the observe all that i have commanded you part they they don't deserve, they don't know the new covenant And so Jesus was instructing the disciples to observe all that he had commanded them. So to understand what these commandments are, we want to look in the Bible at the last few hours Jesus spent with his disciples when Jesus begins to to share truths of the new covenant with his disciples. And here is what we find in this teaching them to observe all I've commanded you of all I've instructed you. First, we discover that Jesus is the Christ. Second, he's teaching them love as I have loved you. He's also teaching them the Father loves you as he loved me. He's teaching them the Spirit will come to counsel you, to lead you into truth and to comfort you. He's teaching them that Jesus will return. And you can find most of this in John 13 through 17. He's teaching them the new covenant has been established in Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of sins. And the Spirit, we we find out later, the Spirit testifies that Jesus is the Christ. And the Spirit testifies about the new covenant, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And the Spirit enables us to call God Abba Father, just as God did. So the ministry of the Spirit is the ministry of the new covenant. So Paul too, following his ascension into heaven, Jesus appeared to Paul. And in this appearance, Paul said to Jesus, who are you, Lord? I asked. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. The Lord replied, get up and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen from me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes. He's going into all nations, right? So that they may turn from darkness to light, from being an unbeliever to a believer, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive, here's the new covenant, forgiveness of sins, not ask for forgiveness, not seek forgiveness, receive forgiveness. So the new covenant is a covenant that we receive by faith. How many times have we taught, you need to ask God to forgive you. You need to ask God to forgive you. That's what David did under the law in Psalm 51. We don't ask for forgiveness in the new covenant. God's asking us to receive forgiveness through faith in Christ. And when we do that, forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who are sanctified are purified by faith in Me. The message again, Acts twenty twenty thirty two, and I'll commit you, the elders of the church in Ephesus, these who He's talking to, to God and to the word of His grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word of grace brings people to the place where they can see by faith, they're sanctified through the blood of Christ. And then in the Jerusalem council, when they're trying to figure out how is a person cleansed before God? Is it the law and faith or is it just faith? And God made no distinction between us. That's the Jews and them. That's the Gentiles having cleansed, Purified their hearts by faith. David didn't live under this in Psalm 51. So we can't take people to Psalm 51. We really need to take people to the cross. We need to take people to Hebrews to help them understand that you are clean, you are cleansed, you are pure. The good news of the New Covenant, the new good news of the blood of Jesus, is his blood completely purifies. Through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, our hearts are purified. Forgiven of and cleansed from all sin. So what does it mean to walk in the light? But if we're in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So how does an impure person walk in relationship with a pure God? John answers it. The blood of Jesus purifies him, purifies us from all sin. So a person walking in the light is a person who is seeking to be in right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Actually, they're not seeking it. They've come out of the darkness into the light, into faith. They've come into the new covenant. So to walk in the light is to agree or confess or admit the truth about. So agree with God about the sinful, sinful condition of our hearts and then place our faith in Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. It is coming into the light of the new covenant of grace where we rest in the finality of forgiveness and permanency of cleansing or purification and have confidence in our relationship with God. When we come into the light of the new covenant, we have a new sense of confidence that we are forgiven and cleansed from all sin for all time because of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. And this is what John, 1 John 1, 5 through 9 is communicating. If people come out of the darkness of denying Jesus is the Christ and denying they have sinful hearts and come into the light or the truth of agreeing with God they have sinful hearts and that Jesus is the Christ and that the blood of Christ purifies from all sin, then God is faithful and just based upon the shed blood of Jesus to forgive all sin and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. And this happens the moment a person comes to faith in Jesus. And as a result, Jesus' blood purifies from all sin, thus enabling us to enjoy fellowship with other like-minded believers and enjoy fellowship with God or be close to him in a loving relationship. And we're going to end with these questions, questions to consider. Why would John, who was with Jesus in the upper room, right, and heard Jesus speak about the new covenant established in his blood at the Last Supper, why would John keep people seeking forgiveness of and cleansing from sin when, according to Hebrews, the very reason the new covenant was established was so people could rest in and enjoy complete forgiveness of and cleansing from sin, thus praising God for forgiveness and cleansing rather than asking for them? Why would, uh, would this have, Wouldn't this have John working against the new covenant that Jesus established? Is it possible that John in 1 John 1, 5 through 10 was inviting those who rejected the new covenant of grace to come into the new covenant? And that's what he's doing in 1 John 1, 9. Is the view that 1 John 1, 9 is for believers to continually confess their sins to God for forgiveness and cleansing, is that view in conflict with the teaching of the new covenant where forgiveness and cleansing is eternal? Why would John teach that a believer's closeness with or fellowship and confidence before God is dependent upon his continual confession of sin? When the new covenant of grace teaches, we confidently draw near or close to God through the blood of Jesus, assured we are forgiven of and cleansed from all sin. And is it, it, is it possible John isn't teaching any of these? But the interpretations of some Bible teachers are inaccurate about what they say John is actually teaching. And those are just some thoughts for you to consider. You know, I'm not asking anybody to adopt my view of, of the Bible or my view of Hebrews or my, my view of 1 John. Um, these are just some things to consider and to think about and to go back and, and, and just study uh, for yourself.